0: You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. Dr. Brad was with you, open up to chapter 8 in Acts, where we're going to be today as we continue this series looking at the theme of unity. And you might say, Bob, your mic's not on. No, is, is it on? Is it me? Is it you? Are we all together good? All right. Uh, all right. So uh, we're continuing this theme of unity, and you might say, hey, I heard Robert read that passage. I heard a lot about, you know, I heard about money, I heard about the gifts of the Spirit, I heard about sorcery, I heard about all kinds of interesting stuff. I didn't hear unity in there. Um, what does this passage have to do with unity? And I guess my answer would be everything, right? We're going to look today at uh, this, I've got to be honest, a little bit different passage, a little bit unusual passage from Acts, one I've never preached on before, and we're going to see the uh, components that go into unity, how mission is required for unity, how um, racism can undercut unity, and how it's important that we are willing to confront one another at times in order to preserve unity. We really need this passage because if we only think of unity as coming from an absence of conflict, from sort of a, a kumbaya of staying near people like us, just sort of the the Acts 2 and Acts 4 sense of getting in a circle and closing ranks and circling the wagons and thinking that's unity, we're gonna really miss an important and vital part of what Acts has to tell us of where biblical unity comes from and where it maintains it and preserves it. The passage today is kind of the, the rough and tumble part of unity, that unity requires us going out, not just staying in. And unity requires us speaking face-to-face hard truths about what's going on in our lives. So this is kind of a, a buckle-up-your-seatbelts look at unity this week. Um, we are going to have a little bit different structure this week than normal to the sermon because this is such an unusual passage that uh, it's not like the story of the Good Samaritan. You could call it the story of the Bad Samaritan. Um, it's It's kind of not one that we don't... We know that's that well, so we're going to go through the story as a whole first. I'm just going to kind of explain some of the dynamics of what's going on. Once we've gone through the story as a whole, then we'll go back and sort of draw out some principles and some application for our lives today. So let's jump into it here uh, at the beginning of the story, up in Acts eight four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So a little context here for where we are in Acts. Uh, Acts is a story that lays out from the very beginning what's going to happen. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells the apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, or the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's really the the outline of what happens in Acts. And so we've known since the very beginning of the book that at some point, someone's going to have to leave the nest. Someone's going to have to go out of Jerusalem. And the first few chapters are as inspiring as they are and as encouraging they are, uh, there's not a lot of going that happens until the persecution starts in the very beginning of chapter 8. And then uh, it seems like all the believers, except for, except for the apostles for the most part, get pushed out of Jerusalem. And Philip, one of the deacons, is one of those original Christians who gets pushed out. And he goes to Samaria. Now, uh, I mentioned the story of the Good Samaritan, and because that's such a cherished part of our faith tradition, we sometimes get the impression that Samaritans were people that uh, were likable and well-loved by the people in the New Testament. Really couldn't have been further from the truth. I'm not saying Samaritans weren't nice people. I'm saying there was great animus and rivalry between the Jewish believers and the Samaritans that were their neighbors. Uh, Because they had a shared religious history up until about 500 years of the time before Christ, there was a lot of rivalry, a lot of conceitedness between the two groups and a lot of animus between them. And so the idea of bringing the gospel to uh, the Samaritans was one that was rife with conflict. Uh, To go to the Samaritans with the gospel required an overwhelming act um, of cross-cultural humility and eagerness that frankly didn't seem to be there for most people in Jesus' generation. These weren't necessarily pagans, but something in between. They were ones who who believed in Yahweh, but but twisted it, with a different temple, a different theology, and a different breadth of scripture. And no one on either side of the aisle liked those differences. So how would the Samaritans respond to the message that Jesus is the Christ, when Samaritans didn't believe in a Christ, or a Messiah at all in their worldview? Uh, Well, this is what happens in verse six. The crowds with one accord, there you get that unity language again. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Think about what Luke is saying. Philip, in the power of the same spirit, is doing the same things For the Samaritans, that the apostles had done by the Spirit for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Luke is drawing our eye to this conclusion that the gospel has the same full effect for both Jewish people and Samaritan people, that there's no sort of second class gospel for those who, uh, by ethnicity, may be far from God. This is really important and really amazing for us because this is not how most people in the ancient world would have thought about spirituality or religion. First of all, they would have thought that religion existed in a localized sense, right? That deities were local to a place or they were local to a people. And what Luke wants us to see is that this gospel is for every tongue and tribe and nation. And Philip is the one who brings the gospel to the Samaritans, that the the spirit doesn't become less efficacious with each generation. It's not like he loses power as he gets transferred from one generation to the other, but this deacon has the same authority that the apostles before him had. Uh, Philip is one of the seven Hellenistic Jews who had been appointed deacons in chapter six. Jason talked about that last week in his excellent message on on Acts six. And maybe this gave Philip greater sympathy. Uh, As a Hellenistic Jew, he had been kind of an outsider in Jerusalem and maybe he was willing to go where others weren't willing to go in Samaria. Now, we could have ended the, sto- the, the sermon here, or the passage here, and it would be an inspiring and encouraging call to unity across ethnic lines. But look at verse nine. But there was a man named Simon, right? The, the guy I'm calling the Bad Samaritan, who had previously pa- practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was someone great. Now, um, just you know, in our in our culture, magic generally has sort of a a light-hearted, childish feel to it. We're we're thinking of magic like pulling rabbits out of hats and sawing people in half and card tricks and that sort of thing. That, that's not the that's not the way the word magic was used in the ancient world. In the ancient world, magic referred to the ability to control demons, demigods, and the spiritual realm, either for your benefit, the benefit of someone else, or to the detriment of someone else. Uh, really the, the closest terms in, in English would probably be like a witch doctor or a sorcerer. That's kind of more what we're talking about when we're talking about Simon. So please don't think of a guy with a top hat and a bow tie. That's not, that's not what it means for Simon to be a magician. Right? Uh, and in verse 10, it says, they all paid attention to him. We have unity language there in a, in a negative way. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Great. And they paid attention to him. We have a repetition there. Because for a long time, he'd amazed them with his magic. For a Jewish person, sorcery was forbidden by the law. Actually, for a Samaritan, it was forbidden by the law too. Uh, But that didn't seem to stop him. Um, There was archaeological evidence that magic was practiced both in Jerusalem and in Samaria because for many people in history and today, The idea of being able to control the spiritual realm for our benefit and for our enemy's detriment is a temptation that's really appealing to a lot of us. Um, And you may have a lot of questions spinning here about, wait, sorcery, magic, we'll get back to them in part later, but I just wanna keep going through this story. So we meet now Simon the Samaritan sorcerer, who seems like the most unlikely person to respond to the gospel, but that's what makes his conversion, or at least his seeming conversion, all the more remarkable. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. That's a repetition of that amazed language. He amazed all the people with what could be done. And now when he sees what Philip can do, he himself is amazed. And the question is, is amazement the same thing as faith, The people have recognized the overwhelming spiritual authority that Philip is wielding far beyond anything they've seen Simon ever do. And even Simon himself recognizes this is unlike what he's capable of. Now, something interesting happens in verse 14. Uh, Philip, even as, as effective as he's been in ministry, he himself is not an apostle. And so the church in Jerusalem sends down uh, not just anyone, but Peter and John, to go observe and confirm what's going on. Verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is a fascinating and unique passage in Acts. There's really nothing like it where we have the apostles coming down to confirm the ministry of someone else, where we see this delay in the coming of the Holy Spirit between when someone believes and when they experience the Spirit in their, their life. And there's a lot of questions that come up here of, well, why would this happen? Why would there be this delay? Why are Peter and John coming? Why are they necessary? Isn't Philip capable of leading people to Christ on our own? In fact, doesn't he do that later in chapter eight with Ethiopian eunuch on his own? So, so what's happening here? We'll talk about that in a little bit, but I don't want you to miss a phrase here. It says they laid their hands on them. This is a parallel to what the apostles had done for the deacons, what they'd done for Philip himself in chapter six. Um, The laying on of hands in the biblical tradition represents the the, uh, connection and the empowerment of someone else for ministry. And for a Jewish person to touch a Samaritan was an act of intimacy and of unity that would have been very unusual. But Simon doesn't take away any of these spiritual lessons. All he takes away is noticing that the laying on of hands led to spiritual power. And so in verse 18, it says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon sees this amazing scene of unity, not through the lens of faith, but through the lens of profit and technique. Oh, okay, that's interesting. That's how you manipulate the gods. I usually use a dead chicken, but that's an interesting way to do it as well. Um, I, I, here's some money. Can I have that ability and power to do that as well? In fact, that's why in, in the English language we have a word called simony or, or simony that represents Simon's name, right? The, the paying of money for religious power or authority. Um, it's quite a legacy for Simon to leave, right? And we rightfully recoil at Simon's crass offer, but this was normal Roman religious culture, right? That, that money was used in order to gain authority over spiritual phrases, spiritual activities, and spiritual power. But Peter wants to correct Simon and all who would come after him, that God is not for sale. Peter says to him in verse 20, "'May your silver perish with you "'because you thought you could obtain "'the gift of God with money.'" You neither have part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Peter offers Simon this rebuke, this rebuke out of a heart of love, perhaps for him, certainly love for the early church and a desire to see God's name and God's reputation preserved and an an invitation to Simon to repent. This is fascinating to me because in chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira are just struck down and we would think if anyone deserves to be struck down, isn't it the guy trying to buy God? But instead, Peter interprets his heart, gives him some language to understand what's going on and invites him to repent. Now, does Simon repent? We don't know. Uh, the story moves on. We don't know what happens with Simon. In some ways, I hope, I think, in some ways, I think Luke, Luke leaves it open ended to ask us the question of what would we do if we were in Simon's place? All right, so that's the story of the gospel coming to Samaria. What do we do with it, right? I mean, there are some passages in Scripture that seem very familiar and they seem like they could be cut out of our lives this week. And then there are passages like this that you just think, I had no desire to try to buy the power of the Holy Spirit as a magician. Like, this is just not my life. What what do we do with this? How does this affect us and how do we understand it? What is God trying to say to us today? Why is this story helpful in understanding him and his mission? Well, first thing I really want you to notice in this passage, it's that the mission of God should bring us to people who are different than us. The mission of God should bring us into unity, especially with people who are different than us if we see the book of Acts uh, as a story of God's unfolding plan of salvation to the nations, it's not a coincidence that that unfolding plan requires people, individual people, willingly crossing borders and crossing the aisle and crossing boundaries that humans erect to, to reach them for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, when we talk about unity in chapters two and four, when everyone had everything in common and they were all singing Kumbaya, but they were all singing it in Hebrew because they were all alike, right? Um, it's easy to see how that's unity. But here, I think we see unity as well in chapter eight because for unity to exist, mission has to exist. The only way we can be in unity with others is if we're willing to go out and reach people for the gospel. For Philip, his, unity, his act of unity was not threatened. Let me try to say that again. For Philip, his unity in the gospel was not threatened by being pushed out of Jerusalem by persecution, but by being pushed out by persecution, it made unity possible with a whole new realm of people. Uh, we had a, a welcome lunch a couple of weeks ago here at Grace, and I love getting to do the welcome lunch, and I love getting to hear your stories and people who are new to Grace's stories of how they got here. And uh, a lot of times, people come to those welcome lunch a little bit sort of spun on their axis a little bit of... Life situations, life circumstances, choices have, for most of them, pushed them out of a church that they loved or knew before, and now they're trying to find if they can find a new spiritual community here. Now, there are some people who come to those welcome lunches, this is the first church they've ever been part of, and that's wonderful, but, but a lot of people have been part of a church before, usually in a positive sense, and they say, I, I just, I'm trying to figure out if this is a community I can be a part of. And, and it's normal to think about what we're losing when we're pushed out of community. But Philip gives us a frame for seeing that that mission, going, going out from what's comfortable, can bring us into a new place of unity with people who are different than us. Um, our denominational heritage here at our church is what's called the Caris Fellowship. It used to be called Grace Brethren until they changed it five years ago. Um, and our history as a, as a fellowship, as a, as a denomination, was one of a very tight-knit community for about the first 200 years. For about 200 years, our churches didn't speak the local language. They mostly spoke German and English-speaking North America. And they were very tight-knit and very small. Uh, they were very isolationist and, and away from the world. And in some senses, they probably would have said, we're really great at unity, right? There's, there's 20 of us. We speak German. We all have really long beards, and we're different, right? Even the women had beards. They all had beards. Um, (laughs) But about 100 years ago, uh, I think driven by scripture and driven by the the work of God, there became this emphasis on reaching people around the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it began the the modern brethren missions movement. And as a result of that, now, today, over 95% of people who are in our denominational family are not in North America and they don't speak English. In fact, in... Uh, the Central African Republic alone, there are 3,000 Grace Brethren churches. Well, there's less than 300 here in the United States. So if you said, hey, what's a normal person in your denomination like? The answer would be African, is <laughs> what the normal person's like, and certainly not speaking English like I am right now. Right? How did that unity become possible? How did it become possible for us to be unified with people very different than us around the world? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't by magic, it wasn't by coincidence. It was by people being willing to leave the nest and act out in mission in order to make unity possible. Well, that's a a story I'm proud of about our denominational history. Here's what I'm less proud of. Um, I, over the last uh, couple months, have been working on a a research project with some other people in our our district of churches here in Southern California. And uh, about 40 years ago, we had 45 churches in our district. Today in Southern California, we have 16. Oh yeah, that's how I felt. Um, And we've been asking the question, why? Where where did they go? What, What happened? And there's a lot of reasons and there's a lot of factors. And nothing's simple by one variable. But one of the overwhelming stories is a lot of churches in our district decided it was more important in the name of unity to stay huddled together than to reach changing demographics in their community. And so Grace Brethren Church of Westminster, Grace Brethren Church of North Long Beach, Grace Brethren Church of Compton, Grace Brethren Church of La Mirada, Grace Brethren Church of Whittier, uh, and on and on and on, close their doors. And some of you may have been part of those churches. Uh, I'm sure there were a lot of wonderful people who were doing God's work in those churches, and I'm grateful for that. And churches all have a life cycle, and churches all come to a close. You can't go visit the first church of Paul in Ephesus. right? Like Every church comes to an end. But there is a ongoing pattern of churches in our theological heritage, in our district heritage, of failing to do what Philip did here, crossing bridges to reach people uh, that are different than us for the sake of the gospel and the sake of unity. (sighs) Okay, all right. Um, If you're mad about that, I would love to talk with you and love to understand that story a little bit better. All right, what is this passage in particular, though? Bob, you're just talking about missions in general. What does this passage have to teach us about unity? Well, I'm sure you noticed in this story the delay between the conversion of the Samaritans and the coming of the Spirit, right? This is, this is, if you read the commentaries, that's all anyone wants to talk about in this passage is why is the Holy Spirit delayed? What does that tell us? For our Pentecostal friends, they'll say, well, I know what it tells us. It means you need to have a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. It's not enough just to become a Christian. You have to have someone lay hands on you and speak in tongues, and then you're a Spirit-filled believer. That's what Pentecostals and and some Charismatics would say. Well, there's a problem with that view. Um, It solves some problems, but it raises some others. Like, why don't we see that happen anywhere else in Scripture? Or why is the consistent message of scripture everywhere else that the fullness of the spirit dwells on all who would believe in Christ? And even if you can get around that or or get around those questions, there's another question of why can't Philip lay hands on them? If Philip is full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, which Acts 6 says he is, then why is he not able to impart the spirit? Why do the apostles have to come to lay hands on them? I mean, it's, Small comfort if you say, Well, as long as you get two of the 12 apostles to come and lay hands on you, then you can have a second blessing when the last apostle died 1900 years ago. Um, and that's where our Catholic and some Anglican friends would say, Here, 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 here. You need the, the apostles to confirm the passing on of the faith. Uh, you need the apostles there. You need the, the magisterium of the church to, uh, to uh, authorize evangelism. You can't have new believers who are outside of one pure and holy Catholic church. And then we look at the end of chapter eight and the Ethiopian eunuch sure seems to be outside the magisterium and Apollo seems to be preaching outside the magisterium. And we, the whole rest of Acts is filled with these questions. You don't see Pil- Peter and John and the other apostles running around everywhere the gospel is and saying, you count, you don't count, you count, you don't count, right? Um, so I, I think there's problems with the Catholic view on that as well. So... What is happening here? The view I find most compelling is that God is uniquely interested in creating unity between the Jewish believers and these new Christians in Samaria because there are there are cultural forces they're going to want to keep them separate. In fact, over the last 700 years before the time of Jesus, they had been pushed apart by cultural forces. Cultural forces is a word you use when you don't want to use the word racism, right? Racism had pushed them apart and they hated each other. In fact, Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that it's Peter and John that are sent for this job because if you look up in Luke 9 sometime, you'll see what John thought about Samaritans. When, When the city of Samaria had not been enthusiastic about receiving Jesus, do you know what John's solution was? Jesus, should I call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritans? That was his idea, right? Like that if they don't receive him immediately, destroy them all. You gotta wonder what was going on in John's heart behind that idea, right? The presence of John and Peter laying hands on the Samaritans to bring them together, I think is a unique moment in salvation history where God in his kindness withholds his spirit until the churches connect with one another. The theologian Michael Green put it this way, the delay of the coming of the Holy Spirit was a divine veto on schism within the infant church, a schism that would have slipped almost unnoticed into Christian fellowship as converts from two sides of the Samaritan curtain found Christ without finding each other. I love that phrase, right? How could we possibly find Christ without finding each other? And yet you and I know that happens all the time, that that we find Christ without finding people who are different than, than us. Whether it's relationally different, nationally different, whether it's different in our preferences or our personalities, that we think we can find Christ without finding each other. Well, this is sort of the the positive side of multicultural community that, that unity provides. But what I love about this story is that it's not just, guys, didn't you realize the Samaritans, are just like us? There's nothing wrong with being a Samaritans. There are no bad Samaritans. Luke's like, oh, I've got one for you, right? <laughs> this story also includes that there are people that may respond to the gospel for very selfish reasons, Uh, As surprising as it is that the Samaritans respond well to the gospel, it wasn't all roses. There is ammo for both sides of the aisle in Jerusalem, right? See, the Samaritans aren't all bad. Yeah, but what about the sorcerer guy? He seems pretty terrible. If you've read Acts all the way through, you know that there are many times where the apostles drive out demons. I mean, we see it in this this passage itself. Philip drives out demons in verse 7. But I want you to notice that for Simon... It's not spiritual warfare that is given him as an excuse, but it's his own heart. Look at verse 22 with me for a second. This is Peter speaking to Simon. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Why do I point this out? Uh because I think it would be really easy for uh, people to have written off, well, this wasn't Simon. This was spiritual forces at play. He had dabbled in the occult. This is probably uh, the consequence of someone else or some other force working on Simon's heart. He was probably a good person deep down. And Peter's like, nope, <laughs> not a good person. Now, this could probably be said about all of us, right? But that the intent of his heart was far from God. And the work of unity is gonna require the balancing of welcoming all in the name of Christ and confronting the wickedness that is in our hearts as well. And, and I, it's not lost on me that we're talking about this on 9-11, right? That you guys remember 21 years ago on this morning when uh, two planes flew into the World Trade Center, when another one flew into the Pentagon and a fourth was crashed, uh, probably on its way to destroy another target. And we look at those events, and we look at what happened on 9-11, and we think about the worst parts of human nature that would cause people to do that. And what do we do with those reflections and those memories? Now, I also don't have to tell you that in the months and years to follow, what a lot of us did that we're not proud of as a country is that we looked at people who were of that ethnic background and we said, they're the problem, right? And there were some terrible hate crimes practiced against Americans uh, who were of Arab background, uh, thinking that if we could just get rid of those people out there, then we'd have unity in here. And, and on the other side of the aisle, a lot of us try to act like we're, we're so not racist that, that we don't think that that could have been a factor at all. We look at this passage and we see this balance that Simon represents, or, or that, that this story represents. That as Christians, we're called to welcome all in the name of Christ while also realizing that there is sin in all of our hearts that needs to be confronted. If we read the first part of the story, we'll just say, see, everyone can come to Christ. It's all good. No need to construct any barriers. But if we just read the second half, we'll say, hmm, I don't know. There are wicked people out there. It's probably, it's probably safer if we just stick to people who are in here already. No, no, the, the gospel unity requires both, right? Gospel unity requires bringing these both together, that all are welcome at the table of Jesus. Jesus. And everyone who sits at that table doubles as a host to bring others. And part of being at Jesus' table is not ignoring sin, but confronting the Simons of this world who would try to exploit Jesus' table for wicked gain. All right, well, how do you apply this to your life in a really practical way? Let's look at the story from the lens of the three major characters. Uh, First, through the lens of Philip. Are you a Philip? Do you delight in being more comfortable? being around people like you, who you like, and doing things that are familiar? Or is it more delightful to see people come to Christ? Some of you, uh, I mentioned, by life circumstance, have been pushed out of what's comfortable, maybe through no choice of your own. And you are spinning, trying to figure out how to make your way in this world. I'd encourage you to find find a way to live like Philip, to use this time of being in uncomfortable positions and uncomfortable places with uncomfortable people as a chance to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be able to bring unity with people who are very different than you. All right, secondly, do you see this scene from the lens of Simon the Magician? Now, it's easy for me to say, none of you are magicians. None of you are trying to buy God. But it is worth asking this question, honestly, of our own hearts, right? Are you in the gall of bitterness and in the grip of iniquity? Are you trying to find Jesus because of who he is or because of how you can profit from him it may not be as crass as as financial as it was for simon but it may be an exploitation of god a desire to say god i have served you and now i want something from you i need you to benefit me in my life this way do you see the story and see that that you're moving towards god or you're trying to pull out of god what you need for your own ambitions in life and third, do you see this, lens, see this scene through the lens of Peter and John? Right? Are you passionate enough, passionate enough about the reputation of Jesus, the unity of the church, and the hearts of misled people that you're willing to speak what is difficult to hear? Are you willing to confront those who are wicked, willing to say the unity of the church matters too much to let it be infected by people like Simon? Or is peace, uh, or, or at least an appearance of peace, the most uncomfortable thing for you? The, the We can't make it awkward, so we can't say anything. Does that rule the roost? Or are you willing to confront wickedness like Peter and John were and speak a message of repentance and a message of invitation to those who are far from God? I hope that this story is helpful for all of us and shapes our church as, as a whole that we'd be people who are like Philip, that that we see that it is not just about preserving what's in here, but that we bring the gospel wherever we go in life in order to reach people who are far from God and very different than us. Because God does have people in Samaria, and he has people in your life that he's desiring to bring to Christ. Um, You and I get to be missionaries to those people. I also hope that we're people like Peter and John, Not that they were perfect, not that they were exempt from their own patterns of sin in their own life. Scripture is full of them. But that in their desire to maintain the unity of the church, they would speak what is true and what's hard to hear sometimes. Let's close our time in prayer. God, I'm grateful for this story as unusual as it is and as different as it is from much of what we normally experience. God, in your word we see what is good and true and what we need to hear. God, I pray for um, people who are in our church who um, feel like Philip, maybe, that they feel like they've been pushed out of what's comfortable and they're getting used to a new way of life. God, I pray that uh, you would use this time to help them reach people with the gospel. Uh, God, I pray for people who resonate with Simon in ways that make them very uncomfortable. Um, maybe, Maybe it's not as crass or as obvious as Simon's sin, but it's no less real from the heart. God, I pray that, as Peter said, that we would pray to you for forgiveness and repent. And then God, I pray for all of us that we would be people who care more about you and what is holy and good than what seems to be easy in this life. In Christ's name we pray, amen.